0: Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program.
1: Immediately after, David took stock. All four limbs intact, no taste of blood, almonds everywhere. He was in the middle of the intersection, surrounded by a corona of glass and plastic.
0: This program features the work of 2021 writer Greg November. In the first half, you'll hear his conversation with curator E.J. Koh. Welcome, Greg. Thank you for being here today to chat about your work. Can you tell us about your Jack Straw project?
1: Sure. So my project is a collection of short stories, and the stories are all involving fathers and exploring the topic of fathering and, to some extent, masculinity and things of that nature. And for a couple reasons, I find this topic interesting In that we seem to be living at a moment, not we seem, we are living in a moment where gender roles in general and masculinity in particular is kind of being deconstructed, thought about. And the other reason that this is a topic that I'm interested in is I was raised by a a single mother for the first nine or 10 years of my life. And so it occurred to me when I had my own children that I didn't really have any sort of personal model for how to be a father to someone that young. And so it started to invade my thoughts and started to be the thing that I was thinking about more than anything else. And so that's what what the stories ended up being about.
0: You ask this incredible question in your project. What are the lessons that a father provides to his young son? I'd love to hear about the process. You talked a bit about coming to the question, but sort of what you've now discovered from asking it and from writing through it.
1: I guess I would start by saying I don't think I've found many answers or many complete satisfying answers yet. Maybe I'm still in that discovery process. But I think what it boils down to is those lessons having to do with a mix of what are traditionally maybe masculine type of ways of acting and seeing the world versus being raised for the whole beginning part of my life by a single mother. And that was my only parenting model for quite some time. And so I see it also with, I'll catch myself thinking something or having a reaction to a circumstance. For example, you know, One of my kids falls down and gets injured. Not like in a serious way, but gets a kind of scratch on their knee. Something that they're crying, they're upset. And in my head, I've got this conflicted, you know, do I comfort and soothe, or is part of the lesson, yes, you got hurt and that happens. And now we get back up and we continue. But you know i i remember at one point when i was maybe 10 or 12 you know 13 years old somewhere around there and i was at a a summer camp thing and i was the leader of some i don't know some team group something or other and something happened and i got injured and i was you know moved to tears and one of the counselors sort of pulled me aside and his message to me was you know, you're the leader, don't let them see you cry because you're up front. And that's a lesson that I have mixed feelings about. And I have this one sense in which I, that's a valuable lesson about what it means to set an example and be up front and be the one that people are looking at. And that even if you are experiencing, you know, pain or anxiety, part of being a leader, part of being up front is to put a calm demeanor and help everyone through the experience. But then another part of that, it seemed repressive. It seemed, well, why can't I express these feelings? And I think that oftentimes there's a way that I think about that with parenting, that I'm not really sure. At times I feel like I've got to be the leader, right, or be a leader along with my wife, and we are, you know, there to model grit model, you know, ways of carrying through and being determined and not letting setbacks knock you down indefinitely, but then also being soothers, being comforters. I mean, the kid's only six years old and he hurt his knee. It's not the same as an adult. I don't know. So I think that's one example where I've got more conflict than answer. And that's sort of what I'm exploring is maybe characters that that fall on one side of that or the other,
0: so Greg, I'd love to know what led you to writing.
1: I think I've always been a writer. I think a lot of people, as their kids, they you know they they write stories or they and you know, I think a lot of children do that. But for me, it was always, I think, a central part of how I thought about life. I've always thought about it in stories, even way before I knew that that was a job that somebody could do. I remember when I was, you know, an early teenager, probably in middle school somewhere, I got it in my head that I wanted to be part of a band, but I didn't actually want to learn how to play an instrument or be part of a band that actually that never really occurred to me. It was more, I took out pieces of paper and planned out the story of a band and I gave the band a name and you know, they released their first album in 1978 and these were the songs on the album. And it never occurred to me to actually, well, if you're interested in music, why don't you become a musician? It was, why don't I'm interested in music? So I'm going to write the story of a band And I think that that was – I didn't think of it as storytelling at the time, but it in retrospect occurred to me as, well, that's kind of a storyteller's way of thinking about something. I like music. I like listening to music. But instead of learning how to play an instrument and learning how to write some songs, I'm going to just tell a story of some other people that did that. And – so I think that's been a way in which maybe storytelling has always been part of how I've thought about the world. But I do remember also a moment in college where I was taking a, a creative writing class and the teacher brought in a editor from one of the big publishing companies who talked to us about the job of a writer. And it, that was the moment where I realized that, oh, so this is actually a job that people do. And I think he asked a number of questions It was something along the lines of, you'll know you're a writer if, and I remember my heart was beating fast sitting in this room because I realized like, oh, this man is describing me. Yes, I feel these things. I think these things. And so there was that day that I realized, yeah, okay, I think I'm going to be a
0: writer. Now we'll hear a selection from Greg's live reading.
1: Four-way stop. Did you even want to be a father? He stopped in the doorway with the bag of groceries. Sarah stood by the car, swaying with little Henry in her arms, while an unseen woodpecker worked aggressively along one side of the house. David couldn't pinpoint exactly what prompted Sarah's remark, but figured grabbing the bag rather than unstrapping their child had done it. Inside the house, Sarah put Henry in his bouncer, where the boy hopped joyfully, drooling on his monkey bib. The woodpecker was even louder inside, hammering on their siding with the force of a power tool. I know, David said. I'll do something about it. Put up a slab of cedar, maybe." Sarah peered at David and repeated her question. Neither of them had slept a full night in more than two seasons, and Sarah had it worse, of course, with nursing and all. He knew he should apologize for grabbing the groceries, should offer comfort instead of justification. But in that moment, his capillaries seized, his skin prickled. For the better part of eight months, David had helped in every way he could. Cooking meals, cleaning dishes, cleaning bathrooms, laundry, and yes, hauling groceries from car to house. So he didn't back down, didn't comfort, and instead ruddered away from apology into deeper ocean. Gesturing at the grocery bag he'd just sat down, David said, You forgot almonds and toothpaste and compost bags. I'll have to go back to the store now. Sarah stood firm. Look at Henry. Pick him up without me having to hand him to you. It's not complicated, David. You can do this if you want. David began listing the ways he helped, but Sarah interrupted. We don't need a butler. We need a father. This time, David threw open the front door. He drove fast at one point, pounding the wheel and accidentally engaging the horn. A jogger who'd paused to stretch his quads looked up, glaring. David drove on. Maybe this time he would keep driving. What did Sarah expect? He'd done all he could for the eight months of Henry's life David had labored in the house and out he provided. So wasn't that a father? But even in his agitated state, David knew that he didn't have the answer and that this missing knowledge, this great unknown, was in fact a hole, threatening to eat him entirely. His mother had raised him alone, but of course it hadn't struck David until the birth of his own son that he had no idea what to do. What was a father? Aside from television and fairy tales, aside from biology, David came up blank. Whenever Sarah handed Henry to him, David's knees wobbled and queasiness set in, like he was about to faint and drop their son on the floor. No. Better to act in the background or not at all. The store was only a mile from their house, and midway a four-way stop split the trip from home side to store side. The rhythm of four-way stops was built into David. He knew exactly the sequence. First the car to his right, which had been starting through the intersection when David arrived. Then David, with the car to the left, having arrived along with David, following after him. Everything went as it should. All drivers following the beautiful alternating code. David felt somewhat calmer. This is what he knew. Circuits. Logistics. The satisfaction of a system that worked. At the store, he located the needed items quickly. Another familiar circuit. He used the lower floor self-checkout. No lines down there. The errand took five minutes, tops. Almonds, toothpaste, compost bags. Leaving the store, David drove in the direction away from home. The background, or not at all. But a red light near the interstate created just enough pause for him to reconsider, and he turned, heading back the way he'd come. Before long, he arrived again at the four-way stop, a moment before the Lexus across from him. As his foot lifted from the brake pedal, he saw the Lexus jerk forward, blinker suddenly on. Knowing it was the other driver who must let up, must recognize, David had the right of way. He refrained from stomping the brake, held his forward cruise. But the Lexus made no adjustment, continued full speed, and crashed into David. Just before impact, he glimpsed the driver, a mess of dark hair, one hand on the wheel. Immediately after, David took stock. All four limbs intact, no taste of blood, almonds everywhere. He was in the middle of the intersection, surrounded by a corona of glass and plastic. He cursed, hit the flashers, and got out. Hesitant cars approached the 4 a driver or two rolling down their windows to ask if he needed help, expressing shock at the scene I saw him plow right into you, someone said. We're witnesses, another offered. Can we help? David waved them on, knowing what Sarah would probably say. Of course you need help. Don't be such a man. David began directing traffic himself. Need me to call someone? A laborer in a pickup said. The cops, David said. And the man nodded as he rolled away. Only then did David think about the other driver, who hadn't exited his car yet. Few things infuriated David more than drivers who didn't, or couldn't, or wouldn't follow stop sign code. Maybe drivers who switched on their left-hand blinker at the last minute, or slammed the brakes for pedestrians where there was no crosswalk, as Sarah sometimes did, and not because he felt cars should rule the road, Or that he thought he always knew best but because in order for a system to work it needed to run unimpeded electrical circuits blood in veins roads a system clogged messed with such things ruined efficiency and made everything worse and no sarah it's not machismo probably david considered it was closer to finickiness a desire that everything be in its place And wasn't that, in the classical, hierarchical, patriarchal sense, more of a female trait? As David stood directing traffic, an octogenarian in a Camry inched through the intersection. Hunched over the wheel in dark fit-overs, he circumvented the wreck in the middle without looking up, appearing not to notice the scene, or, if he did notice, He took it entirely in stride. David peered after him, following the driver's slow progress down the road. When he turned at the next block and disappeared from view, David realized he was now staring at the other driver, the one who T-boned him, still in the Lexus. He was a teenager, with floppy black hair reminiscent of the artsy or rebellious member of a boy band. David hated him immediately. The hair... The crash, the dopey expression, it was too much. Why wasn't he moving? Exit the car, roll down your window, something. David bent over to get a better look. The kid peered at him through the window. David made a roll it down gesture, but the kid just kept staring. David approached, carefully stepping through bits of glass and plastic. He tapped the window. The kid looked around as if trying to locate something and then finally the window came down. David wanted to shake the effete look off the kid's face. But before David could do or say anything further, the kid broke down, hands to face sobbing the whole show. David suddenly felt every driver that rolled slowly through the intersection was watching him with this crying kid. He looked at David through the open window. I didn't see you. I mean, I thought, I, I can't believe this. What's going to happen? The tone was beseeching, his expression desperate. Look, David said. Are you okay? I think so. Can you move your toes? The kid scrunched his face, shifting in the seat. He mumbled something, and by instinct, David leaned closer. You'll be just fine, he said. How old are you, son? He'd said it without thinking. The words just came out, son. The kid was terrified and looking to David for help. The kid was sobbing now. My mom's car, he managed to say. David repeated his question. Keep them talking. David recalled that bit of advice from some long ago course or experience. Keep them talking so they don't pass out. The kid tried to smile, but faltered midway. Sixteen. I just turned sixteen. David kept asking questions. The kid answered, grimacing, but able to speak. His name was Walter. This was his mother's car. They lived nearby. His father was overseas in the Air Force and hadn't been home in almost a year. It was just he and his mom now. David hoped the guy in the pickup had called the police. His own phone was back in the car, forgotten in his initial adrenalized reactions to the accident. But David knew he shouldn't leave the kid. Not now. He reached his hand through the open window and pressed it against the boy's bony shoulder. You'll be all right, Walter. I'm not going anywhere. Soon there were sirens. A fire truck, tow truck, two police SUVs red, blue, orange lights. It had started to drizzle, and someone official was now directing traffic. Men and women in dark blue uniforms had taken charge. David gave his statement, watching as they hitched his car to the tow. Wait, he said suddenly. I need to get my things. While the mechanic watched, David leaned into the angled car, salvaging what almonds he could and tossing them with the toothpaste into a compost bag, along with the roll of remaining bags. The officer who'd been taking David's statement smiled knowingly. Can't forget the goods, right? Firefighters gathered around the Lexus, obscuring David's view, but he thought Walter was still inside. Will the kid be okay? David asked a nearby officer. Yes, we'd think so, she said, but her attention was on something else, some other detail of the scene, and that's all she said. When they asked if he needed a ride, David was already walking away with his bag. He moved slowly at first, conscious of slick pavement. Then he jogged for a block, before finally running full bore, slipping danger be damned. Lungs pumped air at capacity. Arteries working alongside. He was heading home.
0: Sound Pages is a Jackstraw production, produced by Levi Fuller and Daniel Gunther at Jackstraw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Our theme music is by Andrew Weathers, produced in part through the Jackstraw Artist Support Program. The 2021 curator of this program is E.J. Co., and the narrator for this podcast is Alyssa Keen. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, Humanities Washington, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Rainier Foundation, Arts Fund, and Individual Contributors. Special thanks to Michael Folks and Cecilia Ayers for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.